This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Three weeks after the closing of the October Synodal Assembly in Rome, many in the Catholic Church around the world are still trying to learn just what happened during the gathering of hundreds of bishops and laypeople, and how the idea of synodality may play out in the months before next October's final meeting, but also through the remainder of Francis's papacy and in the years to come. We're happy to have two guests today, both of them experts on the topic. Paul Eli, a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center and a regular contributor to The New Yorker, as well as a longtime Commonweal contributor who took a week away from Georgetown in October to report on the Synod for The New Yorker magazine. And Anna Rollins, who teaches Catholic social thought and practice at Durham University in Durham, England, and who provides support to the Office of the Synod of Bishops and the Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development, and who is a participant in the recently concluded assembly. They present us with their perspectives on the Synod on Synodality on this episode of the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Paul Eli. Thanks for being with us today on the Commonweal Podcast. Great to be back, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. So you have been following the Synod, of course, and you wrote an article about it for The New Yorker. And there were a lot of hopes going in, a lot of energy around the idea that there might be observable or quantifiable steps on issues that many who've been supportive of Francis's papacy wanted to see progress on. But the gathering proved to be what you called a meta-affair, which I thought was a pretty apt way of putting it. But tell us why you came to that conclusion. I followed the buildup to the Synod on Synodality the way a lot of people in our world have with real expectations, partly because I think those expectations were created beginning with Francis himself. He discussed synodality really in his first long conversation with Father Spadaro back in 2013. And he's alluded in homilies and some other places to the need to change the church's way of proceeding and to bring out synodality as a third leg, so to speak, along with papal primacy and Episcopal collegiality. So as the Synod approached, I arranged to be able to get there for the last week. And then I watched what was taking place in anticipation of the fact that I would actually be present for the last week in Rome. And I got there and I had a very full calendar of appointments. Bishops, archbishops, theologians, laywomen, leaders of based communities, journalists, clerics, and fantastically articulate people whom I've got a lot of trust over decades in some cases. And more or less without exception, they spoke in a similar, fairly abstract vocabulary about the synod and synodality rather than about you know, what was discussed or what positions people took. And the consistency of this is really striking. And to me, that in itself was both puzzling and disappointing. Puzzling because I think, and let's talk about this as we go, you can't hope that a synodal way of proceeding is going to take root in the church if what's discussed is left out. Then more broadly, I think it follows on a lot of unfortunate precedents in the history of the church. I took part in a symposium on sexual abuse at Fordham a couple of years ago. A number of people from Commonweal were there. And my remarks, which are online, essentially developed the theme of, say, what happened. 
in the life of the church, but especially in the life of the church in our time in which clerical sexual abuse and the cover-up by the bishops has been so much a part of our drama, going forward, the only thing we can do is say what happened. And any effort just to avoid saying what happened and to invoke this or that greater good as a rationale for silence or opacity or circumlocution really warrants our suspicion, I think. And I definitely felt that week in Rome. I couldn't believe the inability or unwillingness of people who were there to say what happened. Well, you, so you, you just used the word opacity, and you note in the New Yorker article that the report that was released at the conclusion of the Senate was opaque and unspecific. Uh, but you also say that some observers were actually okay with this. As you note, even some of the uh, female participants you spoke with said it made sense for the report to, to avoid hot-button issues. Given what you just told us, I'm curious as to what you think made them uh, have that reaction, what made them say that, and what's your sense both of how the report came to be and what it's supposed to mean preparing us for the next synodal session a year from now? Well, the first thing to say is that it's some really remarkable people who would assemble in Rome and people who doubtless have plenty to say on everything involving the life of the church and, and things that what they say would be of great interest. Tons of good intentions, a great feeling among the people in the hall. Everybody there is honored to be there. But the flip side of that honor is that everyone is sticking to a kind of line about what is meant to be accomplished. The synod on synodality is supposed to promote the synodal way or the synodal path or the synodal way of being in the church. And so their feeling is that in order to promote that, we need to leave out the specifics, which are supposedly distractions or divisive. I think there's a certain amount of truth in that. I think there's a rationale for Pope Francis inviting the participants to fast from the public word, is the way I think he put it, while this was going on. But I certainly expected that fast from the public word was going to ease a bit after the synod sessions finished. That these people who were brought to Rome, in effect, to discuss what the church had heard from vast numbers of Catholics surveyed all over the world would listen and hear that and then would take it back to the people so that we could listen to what they said. But that's not what's going on. We're not going to really get to hear what they said. So failing that, one solution would have been to put some specifics in the document. Well, okay, we can't um, talk about this and we want to keep things civil. So let's keep fasting from the public word, but have a document that really reported how issues were discussed and what kind of tensions or conflicts arose. And the document really does very little of that. So this is two roads not taken, the road of conversation and the road of a report that with some degree of control crystallized thinking on certain issues. So there's not a whole lot to say. You frame your piece by saying that going into the Synod, what was clear was it could have been a capstone uh, to Francis's first decade as Pope, and it could have been sticks out. And I'm, I guess you're sort of explaining the could have been. Is that right? Well, why the could have been? Well, let's see, for a bunch of reasons. First of all, this Pope is the Pope of conversation. I would say that the dramatic character of John Paul's pontificate was its most important characteristic. He was visual. There was a certain 
theatrical grandeur to the masses that he um, performed all over the world, et cetera, celebrated. Benedict was a, a scholarly pope. His writings, very precise statements, never a word out of place. And Pope Francis has really done his thing so much through conversation. That initial conversation with Father Spadaro, he's spoken to journalists much more than previous popes. And not only has he spoken with them individually on the papal plane, et cetera, but he's done so in a way that feels like a conversation with a certain amount of freedom. He speaks it idiomatically, colorfully, with some humor. So in that sense, a synod, which is about conversation, could have carried forward what's to me one of the most distinctive and attractive aspects of Francis's pontificate. And then for the reasons I just spelled out, the fact that it's either not a conversation or to the extent that it was, it's a conversation that we'll never get to really hear is a real loss. Secondly, I think, and I'm sure many in the Commonwealth audience could either disagree or complicate what I'm about to say, but I think that extraordinary synod of 1985 held by John Paul in Rome on the subject of Vatican II was a capstone to the first years of John Paul's pontificate. His wish to do things differently had emerged really from the beginning of his pontificate. But at that synod, a interpretation of Vatican II that was promoted as authoritative was spelled out with all sorts of effects over the decades that followed. Certain issues were closed down. Certain people were moved to the margins. A certain line about Vatican II became not only the dominant line, but the one that was the official line. So there's a prior example of a Pope with a strong sense of how things ought to be done, using a synod to um, concretize that. And so it was reasonable to expect that something like that might take place here 10 years in the French pontificate. And it may yet, I think. My hopes are that synod, synodality will go forward, that this is a kind of turning point. But as a lay person, as a writer, I can't imagine it going forward and um, quickening the spirit without specifics. On the subject, as much as we can, of timelines, I've spoken with some observers and some interested parties, uh, historians of Catholicism and journalists uh, like yourself, who've said that we should give the synod on synodality 25 years, that we should wait a quarter of a century from now to see just what might ultimately play out. Uh, what do you make of an observation like that? I find it a little bewildering for a b bunch of reasons. One is that for the significance of something to take a quarter century to register, it has to have some significance in the first place. And I think that the opacity of this synod is keeping it from having the significance that it might have. Again, I'm not an historian of Vatican II, but my understanding is that what was going on in Rome was conveyed to the people of God in such a way that its importance was registered relatively quickly so that we or they could respond to it. And the reckoning with Vatican II that's happened ever since was a response to the sense that something really consequential had happened. And so I'm not really sure that lacking specifics, we can even say that the synod was consequential. Then on top of that, think of the timeline. Massimo Fagioli in Commonweal suggests that the agenda of the synod was substantially similar to a kind of agenda that Cardinal Martini at Milan set out in 1999. 
So that was 24 years ago. This Senate, in its treatment of the issues, is already an act of deferred maintenance, as I see it. That's not but France's fault. After the Senate of 1985, many discussions that ought to have happened, you know, were more strictly re regulated or shut down. So that there's a lot of catching up to do. I'm not sure that we can catch up on the issues that should have been discussed circa 1999, 24 years ago, and wait another 25 years. I think uh, the fact that for progressive Catholics, for Commonwealth Catholics, we are in a need to, to catch up means that we can't reasonably expect a quarter century for the reception of a synod that we don't even know what happened at, to take place. So something did happen after the conclusion of this session of the synod. The Vatican released a letter noting that LGBTQ people can serve as godparents and can be baptized. It's a letter that generally expressed support for the inclusion of gay and trans people in the church, although it doesn't go so far as to allow same-sex married couples to serve as godparents. But what would you see as the purpose of this letter at this point, and how important is it? I don't know the issue so well to say how important it is. My understanding is that the affirmations in the letter weren't altering previous teaching or anything. It was just affirming things that could have been inferred prior to the issuance of the letter. You can know the church's language on homosexuals in 1986 is very harsh. It affirms the value of them as people, it reserves its very harsh language for homosexual acts. So in that sense, one would never have concluded that a homosexual could not be a godparent or whatever, or be baptized. So it's putting something out there that just simply states what could have been inferred all along. I think beyond that, and both conservatives, traditionalists, and progressives have noted this, these gestures do have the effect of opening a gap even further between what the Pope says and what the church does. And I think reasonably expected that the synod and synodality would begin to close that gap. And instead, I think we're seeing a kind of two-track approach where trans people, homosexuals, gays, can't even be named in the summary report derived from a month of discussion among 450 church leaders but can be discussed in a letter reached a few days later. I don't want to say it doesn't make any sense, but it, it's a bit perplexing. Paul Eli, thanks for being with us on the Commonwealth Podcast. Thank you, Dominic. It's been a pleasure. Paul Eli's piece on the October Synodal Gathering appeared on November 7th and can be found at the New Yorker's website. My conversation with Anna Rollins is coming right up. But first, I want to extend an invitation to join me and the Commonweal staff for a free live event featuring poet and essayist Christian Wyman, where he'll talk about his new book, Zero at the Bone, 50 Entries Against Despair. That will be happening at W83 in New York City, December 12th at 5 p.m. We'll continue to spread the word, so be on the lookout for reminders. Anna Rollins, thanks so much for being with us on the Commonweal podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I'm going to ask you to tell us about your role at the Synod and how you came to participate. So I was one of a number of experts who were appointed by the Pope and the Synod office to accompany the Synod process. 
we were people who were, in essence, quite often spectating on the conversations that were happening at, our, at the round tables. We had our own round tables in the room and we were participants and able to join in fully in that process. But we were appropriately silenced. So we were disciplined to a listening role. And our role was really to be there in support of the discernment of the Synod as a whole and in helping in the production of the final documents and so forth, where we could feed in through our task of synthesizing some of the small group reports and so forth towards an end product. So we were there as companies of the process, witnesses of the process, and those who could help in a sense distill some of the conversations towards the kind of communication to the outside world that was necessary once we all emerged. Well, actually, for those of us who weren't present, and a lot of us are curious about the inner workings and what was actually happening there, and I know you can only speak to a certain extent about literally what happened there, but I'm wondering if you could just describe a little bit what a typical day was like when you showed up and, and how things unfolded over the hours you were there uh, in discussion with people. Yeah, so I suppose there were two very different kinds of days that happened in the Synod. So the routine and rhythm of the Synod would be as we began to approach a new theme. So the whole conversations were structured around the working document, the Instrumentum Laboris, and that was broken up into kind of three main sections of discussion. So each time we were entering into a new kind of discussion zone, there would be a day in plenary. So on those days, all of the Synod members would be in the hall, all hearing the same input and beginning to have their conversations framed. Um, and then the groups would move into small group discussions. And then, of course, that was the most intense core, really, of the experience of the Synod. And I think the thing that worked best about it, to be honest, as well, were those small group discussions. So the two kinds of days were either plenary days, where we were listening to the fruits of those small group discussions, presentations from the small groups and individual contributions on the theme under discussion, so those were really intense days of listening to maybe a stretch of six or seven inputs at a time and then holding silence in the room to help us digest and process what we'd heard. And the structured silence was really the core thing that ran through both the small groups and the plenary sessions. I also want to ask you, since you were there as a layperson and as a woman, the fact that women and lay people for the first time were present as voting members. And I guess I'll ask just what was that like? Did you pick up on the fact of that while you were there? What was it like for you personally? It's almost slightly difficult to put into words, which is not great news for a podcast interview, but that there's something almost slightly ineffable about what we experienced. And I thought to begin with, it was just because I was tired after four weeks of working very hard. But I'm beginning to sense that as other people are trying to put their experience into words as well, they're also finding it slightly difficult. You cannot underestimate the difference in atmosphere, in tone, in the way the discussions happened by that mix of people in the room, by the fact that people were able to speak for themselves from their own experience rather than, for example, being spoken of or about. And I think in previous synods, there has been that sense that bishops have felt the weight of some responsibility to represent and speak for others. This time round, almost any group who a bishop might be tempted to speak for was likely to be able to speak for themselves in that room. And that really alters the way in which the conversation happens. It alters the way in which we talk together. So I think the presence of so many lay people, of religious from very different contexts, really made a huge difference to the tone and the content of the conversation. The other thing that really made a massive difference, and it mattered that this happened because that's then how the different groups work together, 
with the fact of the process that was holding the relationship between laity, bishops, cardinals, priests, religious in the room. So the fact that everybody was sitting not in tiered ranks, lecture room style, but sitting round tables with a degree of equality face to face, that changes the way that you have a conversation and, and you interact with people. And that meant that if you were a laywoman in the small group process, you had the same amount of time to speak as a cardinal. And I think that sense of the process honouring the dignity of all the baptised was a really, really significant thing. The lead-up phase to the Synod involved discussions, of course, in communities and dioceses around the world. How did you see this uh, session uh, attempt to resolve some of the very real differences among those present, um, obviously on uh, issues like LGBTQ concerns and the role of women? So again, the small group discussion, the fact that we were able to speak freely for ourselves in those contexts meant that people felt confident to share those really raw and visceral testimonies and experiences that they were bringing into the room. And there was an element of trust in people being able to do that. Now, much of that has not been able to be reported onwards because of the rules that were generated to protect those discussions. So in a sense, what's really hard to do is give people a felt sense of just how deep many of those discussions went, quite how much emotion in a positive sense was contained in that, that people told stories of the harm that the church had done in such a way that others who felt responsible for leadership in the church, were, were moved to the point of deep distress. It's very difficult to communicate the depth of that exchange, either in the sort of two dimensions of the Synod Synthesis Report, which can't quite carry the weight and depth of that, or without betraying confidences to tell those stories outside of the room. But I think people need to know that they did happen and that level of encounter was possible. And it was held within the room and the centre of the room held, as it were, as those stories were shared. So although it's uh, slightly difficult to talk about some of that very openly, it did happen. And only some of that is traceable, really, in the report itself and in the wider kind of um, discussions that, that we're able to have. I think the other thing that I would say, with again, without breaking confidences and very much simply my own reflections on the process is trying to have these conversations about really tricky and painful issues and realities at the level of the universal church, rather than what happened at the grassroots level, even up to the continental stage of the synod process. Having that conversation at the universal global level, it's harder and it's slower because you have got to build the relationships of trust and mutuality that enable those conversations to happen. And that takes time. So I can sense sometimes a frustration in those who were not part of the process. That didn't move more quickly, that more progress, if you like, wasn't made, that more ground wasn't covered, that things of greater sharpness and depth were not able to be written and said at the end of it. And I know why people feel like that. But equally, there's another part of the story, which is the slowness in reality of having those conversations in a way which is not manipulated and not controlled in a room of people who, of, of nearly 400 people who has never met before, who have to consolidate and form those relationships. The slowness of that 
is something that we have to come to terms with and understand spiritually and find a way to reflect on. And I think that means that sometimes it's possible for local groups, for national groups, perhaps even for regional groups at continental levels to make seemingly in a way quicker process and get to greater depth of analysis with an issue and be able to do that in a real way on behalf of the universal church. But to be doing that in a context where, because there are established relationships already and a knowledge of context and maybe previous examples of working and experiences, but it doesn't mean that can happen at the same pace at the level of the universal. And there will be almost a multi-speed process necessarily going on. And I think that's no bad thing. Well, it's 11 months until the, the session next fall. I'm wondering what you would uh, maybe tell those who are interested in what's what comes next, either what to expect or what to hope for or what to uh, be thinking about uh, in the next 11 months? In terms of what happens from here, I think there's a level of not quite yet knowing. So in previous synodal processes, first of all, there hasn't been a a two-year focus. Secondly, in previous synods, very often drafts of the documents have already been written before the synod has met. And so the synod ratifies, changes a bit, debates around the edges, um, really already a fairly well-formulated set of proposals. This synod, despite some of the um, conspiracy theories, genuinely and terrifyingly, nothing was written beforehand. Nothing was written before Frascati. Nothing was written before the meetings to write the Instrumentum Laboris. And nothing was drafted for the synthesis document before this meeting. So that means that we're always only at the stage that we're at. And I think that we're two weeks on when we're having this conversation now from the Synod of this October having ended. And the next month or so needs to be a process of really deep reception, embedding and reflection on those events so that we can see where that journey needs to go next. Now, the synthesis document sets out some of the agenda of what will need to be happen, what needs to happen next. There need to be canon lawyers who are working on a series of very clear canonical issues that arise from the document. And that advice needs to be ready um, so that so well in advance of meeting next year, um, there needs to certainly be reflection on the question of women deacons, and that will require further study and the publication of already existing studies and so forth. So you can see a very particular roadmap for certain topics, questions and issues. And you can see who needs to gather to address those and what the product of that might be. For other areas, I think that's much less clear. So I think one of the questions that remains is, to what extent is the synthesis document and the experience that we've had this October going back to the grassroots level to be re-received, as it were? We've always said that the synod process was cyclical that it wasn't a sort of linear process of just moving upwards, as it were, but rather that it constantly would be a kind of returning to the roots. So what does the process of the October meeting and the synthesis document being returned to the roots do? What does that reveal? And how can there be a process that, in fact, in particular, draws those who have not so far been involved in the process into the process? And one of the most muted voices, we might say, in the whole synod process so far are the voices of priests themselves. They are largely absent. So people have talked about laymen as absent. We've talked about those on the most extreme peripheries as still being very muted despite the desire of, of, of Pope Francis. In fact, to my mind, the real missing voices speaking with vulnerability, with confidence, 
it from the depth of their own experience are priests. That's not accidental. And, I, and by the way, I think there are multiple reasons. But we need to understand more about why priests have not felt that they can speak openly in a public arena in the church in a way that lay people have simply claimed that space. And then I think that there's a question really about how some of the issues that we only began to scratch the surface of this year and where we most found it difficult to find language to speak together about things. And that really includes questions particularly around sexuality, around LGBTQ experience and so forth. It was so difficult to find a common language to speak in. And the absence of some of the language in the synthesis report is really about the difficulty, not the difficulty of having testimonies from and, and impassioned statements from very different perspectives, because that was present on the floor and viscerally so, but the difficulty of finding a common language even to speak about those differences as perspective in the synthesis document that has obviously led to a sense of disappointment amongst some that they wanted to see the fruits of that discussion visible and traceable. And, and that's more muted in the document, not because it didn't take place, but rather because finding a common language to speak of it under pressure at the end of that process became difficult. I want to get back maybe to your personal experience and understanding of the four weeks that you spent in Rome. And on the lead up to the Senate, there's a, a, this sense or this notion that it, it is supposed to be a spiritually transformative kind of experience. And I'm, I'm wondering, did it affect you this way? How, how uh, emerging from these four weeks, do you feel different? Yes, I do. I think there's something about experiencing the church in its truly kind of global dimensions and realizing how little we really know about our Catholic culture in very diverse geographical settings. So the kind of the encounter of with each other as a truly global church. Timothy Ratcliffe has talked about this as a, a multipolar Catholicism. And, and that, I think, is something that it is just quite astonishing to experience in a room in that way. So we often experience it in the context of big liturgies. So as part of liturgical celebrations, we might have a sense of that diversity. And we have it in a microcosmic sense in very ethnically diverse parishes that we might live in. But to experience it in Rome, in a discursive setting is quite extraordinary. And one of the things that I came away thinking about a lot more is how much some of the kind of seeming divisions that we have at the moment are perhaps about not understanding how much the recent histories of some of our national churches, as in churches embedded within particular national cultures, how much that recent history has affected our sense of who we are, of what we need, from our kind of religious observance and of why particular pastoral priorities might form in that setting. And that's particularly striking in listening to some of my colleagues from Central and Eastern Europe, whose experience of emerging from post-communism has a massive effect on the way in which they look at the world in terms of uh, a concern about new ideologies, manipulative ideologies to their mind that take the place of older ones that they learn to become suspicious of for very good reason. The way in which colonialism and the history of mission has affected other contexts and the way in which the church in very different contexts from African contexts to the Philippines, to the indigenous peoples in North America and elsewhere are coming to terms with the legacy of, of that colonial heritage and what it means for them to be forming their own missionary identities in that context now. 
So I came back in a sense, more spiritually aware of those things. I came back with a greater sense of gratitude for the, the, the sheer and genuine cultural diversity and expressions of our Catholicism, of the kind of the truth in many shards, rather beautifully refracted through through the universe. And I came back with a sense of, and you know, I work on Simone Weil, so this won't surprise you, but the sheer difficulty of really giving to other people, especially other people where you feel some sense of visceral otherness or a likely real difference of perspective, really granting to somebody else your attention, your complete and absolute attention, not your, I'm listening while I'm scrolling through my mobile phone, not my, you can have five minutes of my time, but the deep tiredness that so many people in the Synod reported, which really was about the granting of attention, a sense of a power going out of you by really paying attention to other people. That's a spiritual discipline and almost in some ways a kind of necessary spiritual sacrifice that we give out of love or in love to others. Pope Francis's vision of a synodal church in Letters Dream, where the church learns how to do this not only for the sake of the church, but in order to be in Christ, a sign and instrument of union with God and the unity of humanity. That vision that the church does this for the sake of the world in an age where conflict violence, disagreement that quickly becomes a desire to annihilate the enemy. The church has to learn to do this for the sake of her mission to the world and needs to learn to do that in learning with the world as well, not in some tri triumphalistic sense. But I've come back with a sense of the immensity of that task, but also the possibility of it by seeing it in microcosm, imperfect, with all sorts of very painful moments, but seeing that in microcosm in action, it's quite an extraordinary thing to experience intensively over that amount of time. And for that, I see the Synod in its core as a sheer gift. Anna Rollins, thanks so much for being with us at the Commonweal Podcast. Thank you for having me. Commonweal has published numerous pieces on the Synod, both in the print magazine and online. You can find all of them in our collection on the Synod at our website. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>